Good morning, Elevation. Glad to be with you once again as we gather together as a church online. For those of you who aren't familiar with our Elevation community, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here in Waterloo. There are a lot of reasons to love the movie, The Truman Show. If you have never seen it before, I will tell you right now, this is going to be the spoiler of all spoilers, but in all fairness, you've had over 20 years to see it. The movie, The Truman Show, features the, the, the lead character named Truman, whose entire life is being filmed in front of a live global television audience. Uh, hidden cameras all over his home, all over the town he lives in, capture every moment of his life, and people can tune in at any time of the day to see what's happening in Truman's life. Everyone in his life is a paid actor. Everything is set up for his life to follow a prescripted path. But over the years, Truman begins to think that things aren't quite right. He seems to, starts to notice that things don't seem quite right. But every time he explores, the director and producers of the show, they shift things and change it to make his life go in a certain direction. But eventually Truman gets tired of it. He says, I've got to find out the answers. And so he does the one thing that he's been warned he can never do. He gets in a boat and he heads out onto the ocean. Well, as the boat is going across the water, the director and the producers, they whip up the waves and they whip up this wicked storm, but Truman just keeps on going. And eventually he hits a literal and physical wall at the end of this set, this studio set. And he steps out of the boat into ankle deep water and realizes that all of this is a big setup. Now, it's unlikely that any of us are going to discover that our entire lives have been an elaborate ruse for the viewing pleasure of a global television audience. But many of us will discover at some point or another that the version of faith that we've been handed no longer feels like home to us. You see, when Truman reaches the end, the edge of this small fabricated world, he's standing there at the threshold at the top of a set of stairs with his hand on the door. Um, the creator of that world makes one last appeal to him to try to prevent him from leaving and ending the show. He says, there's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. You can't leave Truman. You belong here with me. And as the movie ends, Truman kind of says his final words, opens the door and walks out into real life. Now, as a pastor, I have to acknowledge that I am part of a system that often plays this role in a person's faith journey. One of the things I don't like about this movie is that the creator's name is Christoph. Uh, an obvious nod to Christ. And the idea is that somehow Jesus doesn't want us to explore beyond set bounds of our life or our faith. And I realize that there are churches and pastors and you may have been part of communities in the past that have tried to prevent you from walking out beyond that and discovering what faith looks like outside of your prefabricated um, life. And that's something that I just have to acknowledge. But it reminds me of a line from another film. If Jesus came back, and saw what was going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. Now, it's a crude, uh, crude quote for sure, but there's something about the extreme nature of it that captures the fact that Jesus would never be the kind of person to prevent people from pursuing truth or answers. I wanna read a story that comes from Luke chapter four, verses 14 to 21. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now I gotta ask you, does that sound like someone who wants our search to come up short? Someone who came to release uh, captives, who came to give sight to the blind, who came to bring celebration. Like the person who wants that and who took that on as his mantle and mission and ministry, that is not the kind of person who wants us to stop short in our pursuit of faith. For 19 years, we have been intentional about creating a culture at Elevation where our focus is not on keeping people where they are, but on facilitating the opening up of our faith into the expanse that lies beyond the studio set of our earliest faith experience. We wanna create that kind of place here. We have this brochure uh, in our pews and there's actually a line of this on our website as well. It says, we like to say Elevation is a place for the spiritually curious. If that's you, you'll fit right in. This is the invitation that we wanna to have to people who are exploring faith from the outside. But the thing that I wanna to emphasize today is that this is, about a, this is an ongoing invitation. It's not just a place for the spiritual curious until they come into our community. This is a place for the spiritually curious as we continue on our journey of faith over the years and decades that we're following Jesus together. So this morning, we're gonna wrap up our Reconstructing Faith series with a reminder that this is the kind of community that we long to be and to build together as we journey in faith. The Old Testament book of Nehemiah begins with its namesake hearing about the dilapidated state of his, his ancestral home, Jerusalem. I saw an article in the, in the news the other day. It was said that counseled to decide fate of Kitchener's Cold War nuclear shelter. So that was news to me. Apparently Kitchener had a Cold War nuclear shelter. And the article is kind of neat. There was a link to another page where you could see actually like a, the layout of this place. And the idea was that if Kitchener were hit by a nuclear bomb, all of its leaders, the mayors, uh, the, council, the head counselors, the heads of the fire department, the hospital, police department, they would all go into this bunker and they would survive basically the fallout. And there's like dormitories for the men and dormitories for the women. And there's like a lunchroom and there's all this stuff set up. It's kind of hard to imagine. So council is trying to decide what do we do with this place? It's dilapidated it's falling apart should we just tear it to the ground is it worth sustaining well in the case of the walls of Jerusalem they were not going to let them stay in ruins and so after receiving the permission of the Persian king to return Nehemiah provides leadership to a group of people to begin a widespread building process and they complete the building of these walls in less than two months time the story provides us with an imperfect analogy for those seasons of life where our, we find our deconstructed faith in need of some reconstruction itself. And so in this morning's passage, the rebuilding story continues. Nehemiah 8 verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So with the walls of Jerusalem completed, the people gather together in the public square to rediscover what it means for them to be a community of God's people. Ah, <sighs> remember when we used to be able to gather together as a community of God's people? 
let me just say that I miss it. I miss gathering together with you. But the people didn't just gather together. They gathered together with purpose. Matt Chandler once wrote that community is only as strong as what it's built upon. The gospel is the deepest foundation for community. And so the people didn't just gather together and say, okay, great, we can get on with our lives. They got together and with conviction, they told Ezra to open up the good book. One of the things that I love about this is that they told them what to do. They're like, preacher, we want you to open that book and teach us about what God has to say to us. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now of all the miracles recorded in the Bible, I believe this may be one of the greatest. Walking on water, impressive. Healing people blind from birth, absolutely wonderful. But being able to read from the sun up until noon from the Old Testament of the Bible and to have the full rapt attention of a crowd of people the entire time, like that right there, that is miraculous in my books. Ezra's reading of the book of the law, the Torah, it brought the crowd to tears. All the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. For many people though, before the Bible brings tears to our eyes, it stands in the way of our construction, of our reconstruction. I want to read an example that comes, or a sample that comes from a book by Mike McGarg called Finding God in the Waves. This is his experience wrestling with the place of scripture in his life. What, if any, value does the Bible have for people today? It's a question I couldn't answer for a long time, but I've been on a mission to answer this question for myself. When I found the answer, it transformed the Bible from a curious historical artifact into a page turner that I can't put down. Over the last two years, I've learned that my problems aren't with the Bible at all. All the anachronisms, contradictions, and similar stumbling blocks I found on its pages aren't flaws in the scripture. Instead, they are flaws in the assumptions I hold as I read the Bible. I had long assumed that the Bible was a single book written by a single divine hand through many men meant to contain God's perfect and complete revelation for humanity. That's not entirely my fault. I was handed that lens from my earliest days on earth. I'm not alone here. This is the way many churches teach the Bible, and it puts responsibilities on the text that are impossible to fulfill. A book authored in this divine way would have to be completely free from factual error or contradiction. It would have to be perfect. It must clearly communicate divine will, not just for the time in which it was written, but for all time to follow. This is why many atheists joke that the most powerful tool they have in making new atheists is the Bible itself. No book can meet in such impossible expectations, and many believers have had their faith wrecked on a reef of biblical criticism. Many Christians have felt that they must either accept the lens I was given at birth or dismiss the Bible entirely. This couldn't be further from the truth. So you can probably identify with this, many of you at least can identify with this, having a view of the Bible that made it very difficult for you to pursue faith in the way that you felt it unfolding in front of you. I remember a number of years ago at an extended family gathering, someone talked about their experience of uh, their Easter morning service at their church. Their church had invited a creationist speaker to come in on Easter Sunday, which is maybe a little bit odd. Um, but anyways, they said that his main point, uh, which was so profound to them was that if you do not believe in a seven-day creation, then you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 
And this family member was like so thrilled and it was such a profound thought. And I'm thinking to myself, like this is part of the problem with how a lot of us are taught to read the Bible. You see, the Bible can be used as evidence to win an argument, as a weapon to assert authority, as a rule book to induce guilt and shame, as an instruction manual to help us make decisions. I was uh, recently posting on a blog in which I'm kind of sharing our church's story from 2018. And I told a, a story about a time when I got together for coffee with someone, a friend of Graham Watson's, and we had this great conversation. At one point he asked me if I could kind of turn back the clock and change anything leading up to this season that our church was walking through, what would that be? And this is what I wrote. If I could enter the alternate reality that was being proposed to me and change one thing about my preaching over the past three or four years, I would do a better job helping my congregation understand what the Bible is, what it isn't, and how we can set ourselves up to best read this sacred text in a way that gets to the heart of it, instead of stopping short, because that's where we've always been told to stop. The Bible is so much more than what you may have heard in the beginning. I wanna read from Psalm 119. Now this is a very long Psalm, 176 verses, and it actually kind of repeats itself. Uh, the words are slightly different, but the theme is the same throughout. But here's one section that gives us a sense of what role the Bible can play in our lives. How can a young man keep his, keep, keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your word. Now there's just so much packed into this little passage and I just wanna highlight a few things quickly. The, the psalmist talks about the importance of living according to what we read. So we have this, these words from God that allow us to shape and form our lives. We're invited to hide God's word in our hearts. A lot of the times as kids are encouraged to memorize scripture verses, but it's not something that's just for kids. That we hide God's word in our heart, it's there for us in our times of need. We're encouraged to speak it out. This isn't something that we just read silently, but we actually allow the words of scripture to find their way into our conversation. We rejoice in following it. How different is that from maybe the Bible that you've thought about in the past, that we would actually rejoice in following the kind of way of life that the Bible puts out in front of us. Sometimes it's meditating on these words, pausing quietly in God's presence to consider them. And in all times, refusing to neglect God's word. We have this incredible gift that's been given to us and it's got so much, there are so many riches there for us to mine. Jamie Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, writes, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. What he's saying is that whatever you're doing with your life, those are the things that you love. So when we read a passage like this from Psalm 119, it is obvious that the psalmist loves God's word because it is such an integral part of their life. But what about us? Do we love God's word in this way? Is it actually an integral part of our lives? You see, the people of Jerusalem, they reorient their daily habits and their routines around rebuilding the wall. And guess what happened? They rebuilt the wall. They said, this is, this is what we love. This is what matters to us. Our daily lives are now gonna be built around this one thing. We, however, prefer the notion that a little gardening, a walk in the countryside, maybe a couple of fresh baked loaves of bread will somehow 
miraculously result in a bunch of stones being piled up on one top of one another to form a wall. We think that we can have this faith that we want to have reconstructed without actually maybe doing the kinds of things that are going to rebuild that faith up. If we want to rebuild our faith, we'll need to put some effort into the kinds of things that actually will rebuild our faith. As both the psalmist and the people of Jerusalem remind us, allowing God's word to have a central role in shaping and forming our lives is essential. Back at the beginning of 2020, uh, a friend recommended to me or, or mentioned to me that he was using the Bible app to do a read through the Bible in a year. And so I thought, hey, great way to start the year. So I signed up for it. And it has been an incredible gift to me to start my day every day by reading God's word and allowing these words and allowing God's voice to speak to me in this way. Now, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Now, you may say, I don't, you know, reading the whole Bible in a year, that's, gonna, that's a little too steep for me. You don't have to. But there are other ways that you can say, I want these words to have a formational impact in my life. So I'm going to set time aside and I'm going to make this part of my daily rhythm. Our pastoral team is currently working on some other ideas for the season of Advent that we're going to help our community find ways to build up our faith. And if you have ideas of things that are working really well for you, we want to hear them. Uh, we're starting this church blog that we're hoping people will contribute stories from what's going on in their life or ideas of how you are rebuilding your faith in these days. For me, the scene of people weeping as they are listening to scripture being read, serves a as a reminder of our invitation to allow the Bible to speak into our reconstruction as individuals and as a church community, propelling us forward in life and faith. In Nehemiah 8 verse, 8, verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Every Sunday morning, we give this word prominence in our gathering. It matters to us. There are a lot of other things that we will say and do, but we want to make sure that the central piece of what we're doing is gathering around this scripture. Stanley Gren says that the reading of the text is for the purpose of listening to the voice of the Spirit who seeks to speak through scripture to the church in the present. I got a phone call while I was in the middle of writing this message this week here at the church office. And uh, the person on the phone said, can I speak with the owner? And I responded, I said, you can speak with the owner anytime you want. His name is Jesus. Now, of course I didn't say that. Seriously, just tone down a little. Um, of course I didn't say that. I'm sure someone said that in answer to that question, but it wasn't me. Um, can I speak to the owner? We have this incredible privilege of being able to speak to God in prayer and being able to hear his voice. And in one of the ways we hear his voice is through scripture. That's what Stanley Grenz is talking about. In opening ourselves up to God's word in the Bible, we make ourselves available, again, as individuals and as a church community, to be shaped by what we're reading and by what we're hearing. In Jeremiah 23, we read, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God is saying like, my, my word does something to you. When I speak, it shapes and changes and forms your life. And in the chapters that follow in Nehemiah, we read about the discoveries that people made when they reopened that book of the law and about the resulting decision to change their ways and to enter into a binding agreement with God to serve him faithfully. That's what the Bible will call us to do, do, to do as well, to enter into a commitment. God, I'm going, to, I'm going to allow these words to sink into my life and I'm going to follow you faithfully. In Nehemiah 8, verse 9 and 10, we read, Then Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. 
Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I love the way that holiness is connected to a celebration that includes everyone. That is like a whole nother sermon on itself. But I want us to think about the fact that when we open these words and God speaks to us, the result isn't like bowing our heads and feeling bad and whatever. The result is joy and it's celebration. Okay, you've heard all this. You've heard God's voice speaking to you through these words. Now go and celebrate the life you have ahead of you. These people went from utter desolation to all the way through to worship and celebration. And the same can happen. When our faith begins to crumble, we can look forward to the day when we will also be invited to celebrate. Two weeks ago, at the beginning of this series, I showed a diagram from Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christian. We talked about how section one in this diagram is about kind of the faith that we were handed or the faith that we've had in the past and how eventually down in section two, that faith begins to be restricting. It doesn't seem to fit anymore. Section three is when we begin to, to live out or practice or embrace a new version of our Christian faith. And section four is where we get to this morning. This is the celebration. This is being able to live that new version of our faith fully and freely. Now, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, and this was around 500 BC. But in 70 AD, the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed again by the Romans. They were rebuilt two centuries later, and then in the year 1033, they were destroyed again by an earthquake, and so on, and so on, down through the years. Our reconstruction process is not a one and done event. That section four for many of us eventually becomes a section one, and we continue to go through this process. Faith is not something hard and immovable, but active and vibrant and personal and real. In his book, My Bright Abyss, Christian Wyman writes, there is no way to return to the faith of your childhood. Even the staunchest life of faith is a life of great change. It follows that if you believe at 50 what you believed at 15, then you have not lived. You see, life has a way of changing us. I had this great idea this week. I thought, I'm gonna pull an old journal of mine off my bookshelf, and I'm gonna find an example of the way that I used to believe, and then I'm gonna kind of compare that to the way I believe now. I thought that would be a good illustration. But I found something else that stood out to me that I wanna share. So this is from my 19 going on 20 year old self in a journal that I would read as part of my daily devotional practice. I can look back over the past few years and see many changes that have taken place. At the same time though, I can venture to say that one year from now, I will look back and notice how I've changed in my Christian walk and realize that God is continually refining and I should not expect him to stop. It's interesting that all those years ago, I was already realizing that faith was not immovable, but would always be a work in progress. Now, perhaps the one thing that we should expect won't change is the expectation of change. Again, from Christian Wyman, life carries us always forward to a place where the faith we'd fought so hard to articulate to ourselves must now be reformulated. Time and again, we hold on to the best of what's come before us and then we embrace what's new. Jesus said this, every teacher of the law who's become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. They both have value, the things that we've learned in our past and the things that we'll still learn as we continue to grow in faith together. So this is a journey 
that we are invited to make, not as individuals, but together as a community of faith. We don't have to do this alone. This morning, following our service, we're gonna share communion together in our neighbors groups. If you're not regularly part of a neighbors group and you would like to share communion with people in this virtual context, there'll be a link and you're welcome to join in the neighbors group that way. Uh, this would be a good time for me to remind you that between the end of our online service and the beginning of your neighbors group to go grab some bread and juice to prepare. So there's a passage from Paul's letter to the Colossian believers that I wanna read from as we wrap up this series. Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3, and this is from the Message Translation. He says to that church, and I, I want us to hear this like it's written for us. I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touch with everything there is to know of God. Then you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ, God's great mystery. All the richest treasures of wisdom and knowledge are embedded in that mystery and nowhere else. It's a beautiful picture to me, this idea that we can join together in this tapestry of love and that we can experience this kind of peace of mind in the face of the great mystery that is Christ. The invitation, regardless of what stage of the reconstruction process you find yourself in, is to embrace the mystery of Christ and to follow him by faith. We're gonna close with a song that we introduced last week and invite you to join us as we finish up our service together. The lyrics say, behold what love can do. Behold, he's making all things new. I'm gonna close in prayer and I'm gonna begin this prayer with the final line of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 31. Remember me with favor, my God. Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you would remember us with favor. As we go through a process of deconstructing and rebuilding our faith, of opening up your word and allowing your spirit to speak to us through it, God, I ask that you would show your favor on us, that we would be able to find what we're searching for, but that we would also be reminded that this is a continually unfolding journey, this life of faith we've entered into. God, encourage us by the presence of your spirit in Christ's name we pray, amen. Peace to you, have a great week.